Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop on iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. The future of lending is here. Alt Lending enables companies to leverage their Bitcoin or Ethereum assets to borrow U.S. dollars. To learn more, go to altlending.com and use promo code UNCHAINED for offer details for an interest-free month. Crypto collateralized. Altlending.com. Unsure on which blockchain to build on? Try Blockdaemon's simple, multi-protocol, multi-cloud deployment toolset. Blockdaemon helps eliminate technical debt by offering flexibility across networks and nodes. Try it with Bitcoin on blockdaemon.com slash unchained. My guest today is Barry Silbert, founder and CEO of Digital Currency Group. Welcome, Barry. Hi, Laura. Something I find so interesting about you is that even though you have a more traditional financial background than other people in the crypto space, you previously played a role as a sort of renegade or at least somebody who found and was able to capitalize on a new niche. So in that way, it's not like that dissimilar from what you're doing here in crypto. For listeners who don't know your pre-Bitcoin background, can you describe what you used to do? Yes. So um, after college, uh, I graduated from Emory in uh, 98. Um, I became a investment banker and um, worked on a lot of bankruptcy and um, uh, restructuring deals during the last um, the internet bubble and bust and eventually decided I wanted to itch that entrepreneurial scratch that I had. Um, and I left banking to start a company called Second Market, which you know was a really interesting time to be doing um, a fintech startup because um, this was, I guess it would have been kind of 2004 when I did it. Startup, starting uh, starting a company wasn't all the rage, and there wasn't a whole lot of money out there, and um, you know raised a few hundred thousand dollars and and started a company that that basically we set out to build a stock market for private companies. At the time, the only way that founders and employees and investors could get liquidity was um, through an IPO or an M&A exit. And I thought that that was just totally crazy. You work 10 years of your life and you still you know, were making $50,000 a year. And so, um, yes, a launch second market. And um, I think we, we were successful in creating this, this whole new path of liquidity that's become pretty, pretty common now. Yeah. And that was mostly for companies that were not yet IPO'd, uh, which is a much more common trend nowadays, right? Yeah, well, we, were, we were lucky because Facebook came along. And Facebook was one of these situations where they had such success and they had such a large employee base that, had, that got stock that had just a lot of money tied up in the stock um, and a lot of investors wanted to buy it. And so we were, we were successful in creating a, um, a market for the Facebook stock, which definitely put second market on the map. And then that helped made it, it made it, it made it um, like socially acceptable for a company to allow their employees to get liquidity. And it made it um, possible for investors to get involved in these companies before an IPO. And so we were really active with Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and um, a bunch of other companies before they went IPO. And so you had this successful company and then you left it all to get into Bitcoin. How did you learn about Bitcoin, first of all? So you know, everybody's Bitcoin journey is, is, I find it so interesting. And, and for me, um, you know, being um, like a former banker and then I guess a fintech entrepreneur, I, I didn't first get excited about Bitcoin um, from, um, you know, from, a, from a technology perspective. For me, it was in 2011, I heard about it for the first time. And it might have been around one of those first articles that came out um, about Silk Road. I think it was around that time. And I had just read a book by Charles Hugh Smith entitled um, Unconventional Guide for Investing in Troubled Times. 
and essentially, and this was kind of post-credit crisis, so this is 2011. At the time, I, I still thought that we were going to have another, another leg down in the market. I thought that we weren't through the worst. And so I was reading this book, and it was talking about places where you could put money that should perform well in periods of dislocation. And um, if I remember correctly, the conclusion of the book was, it was like, buy gold, it was like, invest in yourself, buy farmland and things like that. So I was really, um, I guess I was very open to the idea that um, there are, that there were going to be investments out there that were not going to be correlated, um, that would perform well in, you know, kind of in the financial apocalypse. And that's when I heard about Bitcoin. And, and, and so I, like most people, I spent, um, I spent easily six months being a complete skeptic but I kept on coming back to it. I, I kept on, I had all these, you know, the, the, the typical, it's not going to work because of, you know, government regulation or it's uh, the code's going to be flawed or whatever the case may be. I'd had all, I had all of these uh, objections or I had all those reservations. And, and eventually I came to the conclusion, this would have been early 2012, that um, Bitcoin really did have the potential to change the world. And if I didn't have the uh, cojones, as I say, to do something, I would regret it the rest of my life if I didn't at least put some money into it. And so I started buying Bitcoin in 2012. Um, I, I remember the, the first Bitcoin I bought, you know, of course, it was over Mt. Gox. And I think it took, me, it took me like 30 days to figure out how to get money to Japan, to Mt. Gox. And I was... I had to. I opened up like a Dwala account, and I tried to wire money from my bank, which got rejected. Eventually, got got money there, and so I started buying Bitcoin in 2012, below 10 bucks, um, and and I put I put you know enough money into it to matter, and you know the price went from like 10 to 15, and then it fell back down to five, and and so early on for me it was really all about um, the digital gold use case. And so that was my first, first foray into Bitcoin is, you know, just buying it as purely a speculative investment. And then you were saying that you felt like, you know, you needed to show that you had the cojones to get involved. So how did you then go from just buying it? By the way, that story about Dwala and Mt. Gox, like so many of the Bitcoin entrepreneurs have told me that story. Did you lose the money that you put in Mt. Gox? No, no. I, I oh. was lucky enough or smart enough never to keep anything at Mt. Gox. Oh, uh, I see. So yeah. you put it into a hardware wallet. Yes. Yeah, well, eventually, I, mean, I, I, I believe I moved it initially. No, I had a brain wallet. If you remember those, um, it was uh, basically it was uh, you know fifteen words. Um, uh, it was actually called brainwallet.org or .com or something. And so I moved it off of Mount Gox into a brain wallet. It was some of the initial folks that I became friendly with in the space were um, it was Eric Voorhees and uh, and Charlie Schramm and uh, uh, Peter Vesnes and and uh, Ira Miller, folks like that. And so they helped me kind of set up um, a wallet system, and then eventually blockchain. I guess .com came out, uh, Peter Smith's company, and eventually moved it onto that. So I was I was way clear of Mt. Gox, fortunately, when when that happened. Oh, lucky for you. So to finish, actually, where that question was going, how did you shift from just buying Bitcoin to launching Digital Currency Group? So I think, like most people, um, you know, you go through like these. I, I, there's like these five phases of kind of Bitcoin acceptance. So you start off as as being dismissive. This stupid or it's not going to work, um, and then you get to being well, you know, maybe it might work, but I'm skeptical. And then you get to the point of being intellectually curious, where you start reading and listening to podcasts and things like that. Um, and then you get to the point where um, you're ready to put some money to work. Um, and so that's where I was. Um, the, the kind of the last phase is evangelism, which uh, I clearly fell into eventually. But um, so I was I was buying Bitcoin in 2012, um, and the the price went from like 10 to. I think it was like 50 or 60 or 70 and I thought I was super smart. So I started like using my Bitcoin everywhere I could. And I remember, you know, buying um, gift cards um, through a gift, buying like thousands of dollars of diapers from Amazon when the price of Bitcoin was like 50 bucks. Wait, you mean um, like using the gift card? Well, or? you would like, you know, use the Bitcoin to buy the Amazon gift card and then you would use oh, the gift it. card to, you know, buy things. And because I think in the, in the early days, we were all eager to help accelerate, um, you know, the adoption, the usage of Bitcoin. So we were using it everywhere we could. 
And so I, I have not gone back to calculate how expensive those diapers actually were. I urge you not to do that. <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so I was, so I was, I was, um, you know, the price went up and, and I, and I was at the point where like anytime you make five, 10 X on an investment in a short period of time, you know, it's smart to take money off the table, but I was still very, very excited about, um, the potential for, for Bitcoin. I think at that point in time, I started to appreciate the potential for, um, you know, um, not just cross border payments, but, you know, like, you know, ledger use cases of, uh, of blockchain. And it was around that time that the initial kind of class or cohort of companies started getting formed by entrepreneurs that were actually backable. Because prior to that, um, you know, there's a lot of people just running around, you know, not, not even forming entities, just kind of, you know, rolling out products. And um, so I decided that instead of selling the Bitcoin, I would actually use the Bitcoin to invest in these companies. And so at the time, so my first investment was in CoinLab, um, which was Peter Vesna's company. And so CoinLab was the, was the first company that Tim Draper invested into. And I was very worried about reputational risk because I was running second market. And, and, and I knew that, you know, having Tim Draper being the, the first guy to write a check into the company, if the whole Bitcoin thing imploded, it would be Tim, Tim's name that got, um, Sully, not, not mine. So that was the first check I wrote. And then the next one was probably BitPay. Uh, Tony and Steven, uh, they were living in separate cities. They, um, you know, had not yet quit their day jobs um, to, to go full-time at BitPay. So put some money into BitPay. And then probably Coinbase was next. That was when uh, Brian was coming out of, uh, out of YC. And so that was kind of the next phase. It was like, okay, moving from Bitcoin into investing into the companies. And the idea was, one, this infrastructure is really important. Like, in order for Bitcoin to be successful, you have to have the, the, the wallets and the exchanges, and you have to have the merchant processors. But also, it was a way for me to, you know, diversify out of Bitcoin, but stay exposed. And the thinking at the time was, um, you know, if Bitcoin ends up not being the winner, and at the time, I don't think there was really anything else. Um, if Bitcoin ended up not being the winner, I was confident that, you know, Brian and Tony and Steve and others would, you know, you know reorient, it, reorient their platform to whatever the, the winning currency is. And so with angel investing, which I had been doing a lot uh, up to that point, I'd probably made uh, non-Bitcoin deals. I'd probably made about 20 or so angel investments. Um, I just started um, seeing a lot of great companies getting formed in 2012, 2013, and just started doing a lot of, a lot of investing. And eventually I got to the point at second market where you know, if you talk to any of my employees at the time, I wouldn't shut up about Bitcoin. I mean, you know, it just it has that that impact on people, and um, and eventually the I was I was having um some board meetings. My my board at the time was uh, Chamath Palapatia from Social Capital, and it was uh, Lawrence Lanahan from First Mark, and um, Scott Murphy, a former congressman, and you know we were having a dinner, and I was like I was like guys, like you know. Bitcoin is um, it's something that I'm really passionate about, and I was explaining it to them, and I said we should go buy a bunch of it, and they said you're crazy. And then the next board meeting happened. I was like, guys, we got to do something, and we decided that we would use the second market platform to raise money for a fund that we would launch, and that's what became the Bitcoin Investment Trust in 2013. So we launched this, you know, ETF-like vehicle, but it was a private vehicle. Set up a Bitcoin trading desk to buy all the Bitcoin that was coming into the fund. We second market. We we bought three million dollars of Bitcoin. I think the price is about a hundred bucks at the time. Oh, um, wow. So we ended up making a couple hundred million dollars um, off of that investment. Wow. And kind of got to the point in 2013, 2014, where, you know, for me, um, as much as I loved second market, you know, my, my, first, my first baby, um, I felt like we had accomplished mostly what I had set out to do. And I decided that I wanted to dedicate the rest of my, my career towards, um, towards this, this space. And got to the point where I, I was ready to step down running second market. We, we were going to spin out second market. And then we were, the plan was we were going to combine my, all of my angel investments with the Bitcoin investment trust business, the Bitcoin trading business. And it's, it was so coincidental. NASDAQ called and said, Hey, you know, we'd like to buy a second market. 
So um, we ended up selling Second Market and then basically rolled it all up um, into what became Digital Currency Group in 2015. Wow. Yeah, that's quite the story. I want to ask, just out of curiosity, because this is like, you know, what you're, the time era that you're talking about was quite a different period in the crypto in crypto's history. It's like it's like it feels like it's like fifty years in like real right. life. Right. So I'm just so curious to know back then, how did you think the space would develop? And how does that compare to what you think now? I, well, I would say things have happened um in some cases uh, in some respects, exactly as I thought that they would. Meaning, I knew that we would go through a period of time where we would have um, you, know, bu- you know a bunch of companies getting started, a bunch of VC money coming in to support those companies, that we'd get infrastructure built. We would have um, a, a group of investors come in that were you know more you know risk taking type investors that would propel the asset class forward and uh, i knew that eventually wall street was going to come and i knew eventually wall street was going to see the opportunity to trade it to create products around it what i didn't see what i didn't appreciate um in kind of the 2012 2013 time frame and frankly i don't think most people did was um the the potential to utilize, I mean, the term blockchain wasn't even used. Um, right. And, and so to, to use the blockchain for something other than recording the val- you know, value or kind of ownership of Bitcoin, it wasn't really something that I spent a lot of time thinking about. It was really more about, okay, how can we use this digital gold as a way to facilitate cross-border payments? How can we use it as a way to, you know, disseminate the credit card companies? And so I, I you know, when, when, you know, the Ethereum paper came out, didn't really embrace it, um, didn't really get it, um, to a certain extent, still don't really get it. And so I think, I, think, I think from an investing perspective, things have played out exactly as I thought that they would. But from a, um, from a utility perspective beyond speculative investment, I'm constantly surprised about what's happening and what's being attempted. Oh, and when you say that, uh, you also said from a utility perspective, meaning what you what people are using it for or what people think it could be used for. I, you know, I, you know, if you kind of look at the landscape, um, you know, today there's, there's really not a lot of traction for any product for any use case beyond speculative investment. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, we went through a period of time in, um, you know, 2015, 2016, where, you know, blockchain was all the rage, enterprise blockchain was all the rage, and blockchain was going to, you know, disintermediate Uber, and it was going to create new ways to, you know, track provenance and, and supply chain, and it was going to tra- transform trade finance, and it was going to turn upside down, clearing and settlements on Wall Street. And if you kind of look around the landscape today, none of this really happened yet. Um, and not to suggest that that it won't happen, but um, I didn't. I in 2012, 2013, I didn't expect that this technology be used for those types of things. And where we sit, you know, today in 2018, I still don't see it being used yet for those types of things. But certainly, I, I expect it will, and I hope it will. Especially given that we've made investments in many, many companies looking to do that. Yeah. I mean, I think there are some, they're not like widely used and I don't think they're really revolutionary, but like there was the, the lettuce announcement with Walmart and then I guess Maersk now is launching this joint venture around trade finance. Yeah. And, I think a lot not of trade finance, but, um, supply chain. Uh, supply yeah, chain yeah. But I think a lot of those applications, you know, one, most of them are, are being built on, you know, private blockchains. Most of them could be, you could just, you know, utilize a shared database. Cause a lot, a lot of, a lot of where those um, efforts have been successful is just convening all the right stakeholders to get them to agree on some type of you know kind of standard or information sharing. And I think that the real true innovation is really going to be it's going to be done on these you know kind of public permissionless blockchains. And none of those, as far as I've seen, are being done on on any of those types of blockchains. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I I agree. All the like provenance stuff and whatever is really somewhat boring and not revolutionary. Um, so let's not talk about it more, but let's, I'm going to give you the floor. What is Digital Currency Group? 
So Digital Currency Group uh, is a company, um, and I'll, I'll reiterate that, we're not a fund, we're a company um, that's in the business of investing in companies, in uh, incubating and building companies, in buying companies, and investing in digital assets. When I put the whole thing together um, from the pieces, you know, from my early Bitcoin investing days and angel investing days and the second market days, I decided to set it up as a company to give us total flexibility so we can do really anything we want, um, you know, which, which uh, meaning, you know, a venture fund does certain things, a private equity fund does certain things, a hedge fund does certain things. As a company, we can do anything, which is great. I set it up as a company so that we would have permanent capital. So I don't have to worry about um, going to raise a new fund every three years. I get to make super, super long-term bets on people and ideas and, and tokens and digital currencies. And it also gives us the ability to one day go public. And so the companies that, that I looked at and look at as, as businesses that I would like to emulate would be SoftBank and Berkshire Hathaway and Naspers and companies like that. Companies that I think I've done a really good job, you know, being very long-term focused, being patient capital. And I think what's unique about DCG is the network and the breadth of what we've created um, in just one industry. You know, the ability to connect all the dots, um, I think, is super valuable for us. And I think it's super valuable for all of the all the pieces of DCG. So what are the pieces? So we have essentially three parts to our company. We have a venture investing piece. Uh, we invest typically at the seed stage. We like to be the, the first check into a company. We uh, have invested now in 130, or a little more than 130 companies um, in 30 countries, making us the most active investor in the space. We invest across the entire spectrum of use cases. And so we've invested in 20 exchanges. We've invested in half a dozen um, you know, digital rights and identity businesses. We've invested in companies doing enterprise blockchain. We've invested in businesses that are you know, working on stable coins and things like that. So that's the first part. Uh, and you know, that, that group of companies you know, includes, um, you know, by and large, all the companies that have gone on to... Uh, I think had have had success so far and created a bunch of value. It's a really, really great group of entrepreneurs, great group of companies. The second part of our business is we invest directly into digital currencies. We uh, are, I, we are not very excited about ICOs and don't really invest in tokens by and large. We, um, instead of investing in a lot of different things, we make a few very, very large investments um, and try to be a supportive, active investor in these tokens. And so instead of just, you know, writing a check and hoping that, you know, the community grows and the utility increases and awareness grows, we try to get involved and be helpful. And so uh, today there's, there's really only five that we have made a large investment into. Um, it's Bitcoin, Ethereum Classic, Zcash, um, Decentraland, uh, and Horizon, which used to be called Zencash. So that's the second part of our business. Um, and the third part of our business are companies that we own. So we own three companies currently. We own Genesis Trading, which also has Genesis Capital, which is a trading and a lending business. We own Grayscale Investments, which is the, the Bitcoin Investment Trust Fund was kind of the flagship fund of the Grayscale Investment business. Grayscale is the largest asset manager in the country, world probably, uh, for, for digital currency, but um, uh, $1.5 billion in assets and management. And then um, we own CoinDesk, uh, the uh, the media and the events business. So, so you know, scale wise, size wise, at the uh, at you know kind of last quarter's end, um, had about half a billion in assets um, on our balance sheet, and you know we'll we'll do probably a hundred million dollars of revenue this year, um, operating revenue off of our subsidiaries. So I want to ask you about your strategy for how you choose, you know, the companies you invest in and also the different companies that you have here as subsidiaries or, or parts of DCG. The industry in general is always like espousing these ideals of decentralization, but your vision for DCG to be like in this model of Berkshire Hathaway. And then also even just when I listen to the areas that you've invested in, um, it doesn't feel like decentralization is a big theme. Is that, what are your thoughts on that? I would say, I think that that's um, a pretty accurate read. Um, 
I'm not necessarily I'm not much of a believer in the idea um, that every business model, every concept is better off being decentralized. And you know, in the early days of Ethereum, a lot of people were running around talking about um, you know we can now finally disintermediate Uber, disintermediate Airbnb, disintermediate Twitter. And one, I, I didn't really then or now um, see why those business models should be disintermediated. I think. One, I think it'd be hard to do, but but two, just from a trust perspective, you know, I I trust that you know when I order a car from Uber, um, it's going to show up. I trust that when I make a payment, um, you know, my credit card information is not going to get stolen. And so, so I think a lot of a lot of the business models that have been attempted, we've not really been very big believers in from an investment perspective because didn't really see the problem that they were trying to solve. Um, I do think, however, that when it comes to, um, when it comes to um, uh, money, <laughs> when it comes to our financial system, when it comes to payments, um, when it comes to um, cross-border um, you know, remittance and money flows, uh, that entire space is ripe for disintermediation. And not necessarily decentralization, but disintermediation, eliminating all the middlemen, all the friction points, all the unnecessary costs and all the opacity that exists. So I think a lot of our investments have been geared towards, okay, how do we, you know, if we're going to be building a new financial system, what are the, you know, what are the businesses, what are the pieces, what's the infrastructure we have to invest in to make that possible? And so that, you know, that would be custody solutions and that would be trading software and that would be exchanges and wallets and things like that. Less so, um, and while we have made a few investments in decentralized exchanges, it's less so about you know disintermediating or de- you know decentralizing the entire exchange space. And earlier, you did say you were very interested in permissionless innovation, and so this is like a bit of a nuance. But how does that? Square because a lot of these, you know, in fact, actually, you you do invest in a lot of enterprise companies. So yeah, I think the um, permissionless innovation, where I think innovation is going to happen, is going to be, you know, in the context and the construct um, of somebody looking at a process, looking outside in, um, without you know having you know with having to worry about incumbents or inertia or anything in creating a new business model. Um, and so, you know, the one, the, you know, I think the whole capital formation space is an area where we're going to, we, we are seeing obviously um, some real innovation. And while I'm not a big believer in, in ICOs, you know, by and large, um, I do think that the ability to create new forms of economic instruments that enable investors to participate in the growth of an idea, concept of business, I think that that's made possible by something like blockchain. And I do believe that, you know, in 20 years, the ability for somebody to support and invest in and and benefit from the growth of an idea is not necessarily going to be limited to just buying equity. And that type of innovation, you know, whether whether it's innovation around new lending systems, whether it's innovation around revenue share concepts, whether it's innovation around, you know, tokenization of, you know, whatever type of assets, I think that that's not, that's not going to be done by, you know, Goldman. It's going to be done by somebody who's experimenting and trying and failing and eventually hitting on an idea. Um, and frankly, it's, it's one of the ideas, it's one of the reasons why we're, you know, so excited about Decentraland, you know, which is this, um, you know, if you've read Snow Crash or Ready Player One, this idea of a decentralized you know, metaverse, because it's, it's, you know, the real estate, the, the land and decentral land is recorded on the blockchain that has its own native currency called mana. There's real interesting ideas around how do you, you know, experiment. Um, there's actually, um, Ripio is going to be launching mortgages, uh, for, um, for land within decentral land. And, you know, in the real world, you know, kind of blockchainifying a mortgage and creating a new way for people to lend and borrow, there's a lot of incumbents, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of people that you'd have to disintermediate. In Decentraland, it doesn't exist. And so that's all going to happen. You know, Decentraland is an Ethereum-based uh, platform. And so we're going to see some real interesting experimentation in Decentraland. And that's where I think we'll see the innovation happen. We're going to keep discussing 
investments like Decentraland, but also regulation and Grayscale's investment trust. But first, I'd like to take a quick break for our fabulous sponsors. Want to make it as easy as possible for a developer community to connect to your main net? Blockdaemon offers a blockchain networking tool that spins up nodes around the globe in seconds via its simple email invite system and GitHub integration. Leading protocols like Aon and Stellar trust Blockdaemon for their DevOps and decentralization services. Blockdaemon is offering all blockchain projects a global decentralized network management tool connected to multiple infrastructure providers. Go to blockdaemon.com slash unchained and start a free 30-day trial today. A startup that completed an ICO and looking to leverage Ethereum for working capital. A miner looking to buy more rigs without having to sell Bitcoin. Alt lending can help. Alt lending enables companies to leverage their Bitcoin or Ethereum to borrow US dollars while retaining ownership of their crypto assets. We bring years of financial and technological expertise to the blockchain space. Access to institutional capital means borrowers don't have to wait weeks to receive a loan. Our simple and efficient vetting process makes getting a loan easy. No membership tokens or complicated signups required. To learn more, go to altlending.com and use promo code UNCHAINED for offer details for an interest-free month. Asset lending. Reimagined. Altlending.com. I'm speaking with Barry Silbert of Digital Currency Group. You have mentioned a couple of times now that you are not bullish on ICOs. Why is that? I think it's a combination of a lot of scars um, I still have from running <clears throat> second market, um, a regulated business for 10 years. And, um, you know, trying to, trying to understand um, and appreciate the, um, the viewpoint of regulators, the SEC in particular, and, and knowing that essentially the way that they view the world is, um, you know, you have the 1933 Act, the 1934 Act, and you have, you know, a bunch of rules that have been put in place, you know, between then and now, you're either compliant or you're not. You either are, you either fall within the box of, um, okay, we're, you know, we're, we're following the 33-34 Act or you don't. And there's not really a lot of, um, there aren't many examples where the SEC said, okay, um, we're going to create new rules for you. Um, we were, and I was very involved with the Jobs Act, I spent a couple of years of my life. Um, I made something like a hundred trips down to DC to meet with members of Congress and the SEC and policymakers to get the Jobs Act done. And one of the pieces was was crowdfunding, which would enable anybody to invest in startups. And ultimately, um, the final rules that came out, um, you know, the the actual rulemaking was designated or delegated to the SEC. It's just not a, it's, not, it's just not a workable construct to raise money. Um, and I think that was you know by and large um, you know by design of the SEC. SEC to um, you know kind of look out for investors and and uh, and make sure that the uh, the frauds were not using uh, crowdfunding. So having having spent um, you know ten, ten years of my life you know running a regular business and knowing how the SEC kind of thinks of the world, the idea that anybody could put up a white paper and put up a website and go raise money from the masses um, it just it went it, it goes against everything that that I have come to see or appreciate um, that the way the rules work in the U.S. It doesn't mean that I'm not philosophically supportive of the idea of removing barriers. It doesn't mean that I don't want to see capital formation become easier. I just, I just know it's just not legal. So for us, as we started seeing um, all these... Um, these token projects get launched over the past few years, and you know we pretty much saw all of them. You know the the analysis for us was okay. Number one, is there even a purpose for this token? You know I think a lot of the the projects early on were hey we're going to introduce a token that you're going to buy to use our product, whether it's you know a gaming platform or something like that. And and to us it, it just didn't it just didn't make a lot of sense to add friction. Um, to a to a product that didn't need a token. So you know, for us, number one was is a token even necessary? Two is is the team behind it capable of executing on you know this 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 vision? Um, you know, having invested in startups now for fifteen years, you know, it it takes ten years mostly for the most part for an idea to succeed or fail. And that's a really long time. Um, and so, you know, is the team behind it, are they, have they demonstrated success anywhere in their lives to lead, lead me to believe that they could be successful at this? The next is, um, you know, is the valuation reasonable? 
and so if you kind of go through those three checks, um, that for us eliminated 99% of, of the tokens that we saw. And then the last check was, okay, are they going to do the offering in a legal way? And, and for the first 12, 18 months, most of them were not complying with, you know, kind of the rules and regulations. And so, so you know, again, ultimately, um, I think the whole ICO, ICO market's going to go away. I think it's going to evolve. And the question now is, are security tokens going to be a thing? I think there will be some utility tokens, but I'm not convinced that utility tokens are a good investment. Um, you know, they may be something worth trading around, you know, maybe like a commodity, like a natural gas or copper. But as a long-term investment, I'm not convinced utility tokens will have a lot of appreciation. And then, you know, security tokens, you know, the question that I have is just because you record ownership of equity or a financial instrument on a blockchain, does that make it any better, any more liquid, any more valuable than one that's recorded, you know, at a transfer agent or at a law firm? And I'm not convinced yet that it does. You know, having run second market and run the market for Facebook stock, it, it, was, it was hard to create a liquid market in Facebook stock. And that was a multi-billion dollar company. To create a market, a liquid market in a security token, you know, that has a $10 million market cap with, you know, 50 holders or whatever the case may be. I'm just, I'm just, I'm not yet convinced that that's, that that's the future of capital formation. So here we've got things like your portfolio company, Kraken, being pretty publicly antagonistic toward regulators. On the other hand, another portfolio company, Shapeshift, seems to have like preemptively made some moves toward compliance. They're transitioning toward requiring accounts. Regulators are indicating they're only just getting started in the space. I even know some of your portfolio companies have issued utility tokens in ICOs. I don't remember literally every company you've invested in, but I think like maybe Brave or uh, did you invest in Protocol Labs? Yes. So, you know, so in that regard, like when you look at kind of what's going on amongst your portfolio companies and you bring this, you know, history that you have uh, dealing with regulators, how do you feel like this reckoning between crypto and regulation is going to play out? Well, one I'll highlight on the investing side, um, our target ownership in companies is two to 5%. We don't take board seats. We don't take active roles in, in the day to day or, you know, management decision-making in these companies. It's very much a bet on the entrepreneur and then we get out of their way and we help to be supportive. So, um, the one, you know, of our companies that have conducted, um, token offerings, Certainly, they reached out to us to get our input. We provided input. Um, certainly, did our best to connect them with, uh, you know, the lawyers to do them, you know, kind of properly. And there are a few that we participated in. So, for example, Protocol Labs, we invested in the company initially, and then when they did the Filecoin offering, we invested in that. And I think that that's, you know, in the kind of long list of of, of tokens that are, you know, potentially going to be valuable utility tokens. That's that's you know one that we were very excited about. But I think from a I think from a regulatory perspective, like it's it's still unclear what the future is going to be from a from a regulatory modernization perspective. You know, is is the SEC going to update rules to create clarity? Or are they going to stick to referencing the 33 Act, the 34 Act, and the Dow report as guidance um, and then use enforcement actions to essentially you know, kind of create policy? I don't know. I mean, in, in our dialogue with, dialogues with the SEC, but directly in through our companies, they come across as being forward-thinking. They come across as trying to do the right thing. Uh, I think they recognize that there's, um, there's going to be regulatory arbitrage that's going to exist where there are going to be countries that are going to say, you know, bring your ICOs here, bring your tokens here. But I think the, the SEC also recognizes that for the most part, most of the, um, the kind of the developed world is going to follow the SEC's lead. And, um, and so frankly, I just, I just don't know where things are going to shake out. And so for us, we're, we're pretty much just sitting on the sidelines and waiting for clarity because there's no reason for us to rush into any of this. And this is such a flashpoint, but I'm so curious for your opinion on this. You are, again, your portfolio company crack and the CEO, Jesse Powell, who was previously on my podcast. Uh, he's been especially critical of the New York bit license 
And um, a bunch of your portfolio companies actually did go through the process to obtain one while others just left New York State. What is your take on the bit license? So being a New York-based company, um, and I was asked to testify um, when... um, Ben Lossky, who was running the DFS, uh, was putting together the bit license. You know, we had a front row seat to kind of see how that evolved and came about. And um, and, fr- and frankly, <clears throat> Genesis, one of our companies, you know, has a bit license. And seeing the um, the large stack of paper and the many legal bills um, that they endured to um, get a bit license, you know, it, I think it's fair to say that the the the, the bit license that was created did not reflect um, a structure that certainly I advocated for, um, you know, which would have been, um, it would have been, I'll take a step back and say, look, I, I think the, the, the license itself in New York was, it was going to happen. Like there was, there was no possible outcome that it wasn't going to happen. So all of us New York companies and investors in the space, we could have been part of the solution or um, just let it happen. And, and so I, we definitely did our best to advocate for something that was less, less expensive. We advocated for something that was easier for smaller companies to get. And I think there are some points that we won on. There's some points that we lost on. I do think that over time, um, any company in a developed country that is touching the banking system is going to be regulated up and down. And it remains to be seen um, if there is a model out there that exists that enables you to either not touch the banking system or do it in a way that enables you to not become regulated by lots of different regulators. And, and look, I think it's an unfortunate reality, but I do think that it is an, it is an important step to bring more capital into the asset class to get more infrastructure built. And then I think eventually we'll get to a point where consumers and businesses and investors can actually bypass many or most of these regulated on-ramps and off-ramps because they'll be utilizing you know, either Bitcoin or something like Zcash or something like Horizon that you know, preserves um, you know, privacy and anonymity and enables you to, um, to um, you know, again, kind of operate on the, let's call the kind of the, the Bitcoin superhighway without ever having to get off. Does that make sense? Yeah. Why are you an Ethereum classic believer, but not an Ethereum believer? Well, I guess one, I am a believer in the potential of smart contracts, um, as a concept. Um, I'm a believer in Ethereum as a technology. I'm a believer in the incredibly capable and passionate community that exists in both Ethereum and Ethereum Classic. What I have historically not been a believer in, and still not, is the, um, is the, is the investment upside in ETH, in the token. The reason why I'm excited about Ethereum Classic is... Um, I guess fewfold. Number one, um, from a from a from a potential pr- perspective, from a utility perspective, Ethereum Classic provides all the same optionality as Ethereum from a smart contract pl- platform perspective. If smart contracts are going to become a thing, if they are going to power business processes, if they're going to power DApps, um, Ethereum Classic is 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 is, is, is you know, equal, equally uh, capable to, to deliver um, on that promise as Ethereum. Number one. Two is from um, from a economic or monetary policy perspective. Early on, the Ethereum Classic community um, looked to Bitcoin and its cap supply as a way to create um, clarity for investors around ultimately with the, a number of tokens that would be outstanding. So Ethereum Classic is a capped. Um, um, there will be uh, no more than about two hundred and thirty million. Uh, ETC tokens ever created, whereas Ethereum is is by design um, uncapped. It'll it'll uh, uh, ETH will keep, continue getting created uh, into perpetuity. Um, next, the um, Ethereum Classic community is is um, you know holds sacred the idea of immutability um, and essentially not changing history. And you know as you as you know, the creation of Ethereum Classic came out of the, the DAO hack and the decision to essentially reverse that. That hack um, and the Ethereum Classic community, which I'm a big believer in, is the ability for a small group or a large group um, um, or anybody to kind of change history. I think is something that shouldn't be tampered with. And you know, on top of that, um, Ethereum Classic fortunately has not been used for any ICOs. 
Um, and so as the ICO market dies down, as that demand for Ethereum goes away, um, as the projects start to look to liquidate the Bitcoin and Ethereum that they, um, that they raised, it potentially is some pretty meaningful headwinds for Ethereum specifically. But, but there's so little developer activity on Ethereum Classic compared to Ethereum. I, I would actually argue if you look at all of the different networks that are being you know, developed and supported out there, Ethereum Classic is actually one of the most active developer communities. Um, certainly nothing could compare to Ethereum, um, of course. Um, but Ethereum Classic has three um, different developer groups that are working on it right now. There's 35 full-time people um, working on Ethereum Classic spread across three different groups. Um, and that community is focusing on things um, like stability and security and scalability um, and less so focused on you know, building and rolling out you know, ICOs and, and DApps and things like that. Ultimately, but isn't, isn't that, aren't the DApps the main kind of point of these smart contract platforms? Um, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, as of right now, no DApps are being used. Um, and this is, again, why I'm... Does the central know, land count as a DApp? Um, well, it's, it hasn't launched yet. So it's, it's, it's a, it, yeah, it is a DApp. It hasn't launched. So I look at Ethereum Classic, which trades at roughly 5% of the value of Ethereum, and I look at an incredibly passionate community, which reminds me of the early days of Bitcoin. I look at a passionate developer group, um, which are, I think, some of the best developers in the world. Um, I look at a easy-to-understand monetary policy that investors can get their heads around. Um, I look at the fact that there are no ICOs that have been done on ETC leads me to believe that if things turn out badly for Ethereum, ETC may benefit from it. Certainly, the move of, from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake on Ethereum is likely going to result in many miners of ETH moving over to ETC. And you couple all of that with the fact that it's trading at 120th of the price of Ethereum. From an investment perspective, um, I, I think it's the, it has the best risk-return profile out of all tokens out there right now. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder, you know, when you say that you're sort of waiting for the ICO thing to die down, ICOs brought in 6.5 billion last year, and already this year they've brought in 12 billion, and the year's not over yet. Right, so. but if you look at the past few months, um, it's down 80, 90% year over year. So I think, I, I believe that by the end of this year, early next, um, certainly the quality of the projects that we see raising money right now are terrible. And so I think we're at the long tail right now. And then really the question is, is the next evolution of ICOs, is it security tokens? You know, is it financial assets? Is it tokenization of fixed assets, you know, hard assets? Is it NFTs? And if it is, can that propel the same level of investor interest as this first wave? I don't think so, at least not in the next couple of years, but, but who knows? Um, in a way, uh, what Decentraland offers, aren't those sort of like e NFTs in the sense it's like real estate and you own it? It's actually, um, it's I think one of the best examples of an NFT. So um, the way that Decentraland is set up is there's um, 90,000 parcels of land. Uh, I think roughly uh, maybe a third to half of them are allocated towards districts. So there's a, there's a university district, there's a Vegas district, there's a fashion district. And so that's, each one of those districts is owned by uh, people who staked uh, mana, which is the, the currency in Decentraland. And then um, I believe about a third of the 90,000 are, are owned privately, meaning um, Decentraland ran an auction um, at the end of last year where those parcels of land were sold. And so each parcel um, is non-fungible. It is its own, you know, has its own coordinate. And there's been um, a lot of excitement around the potential for Decentraland. And I don't know what, what the timing is, but there are a number of parcels that were not yet sold in the first auction, which was sold in the, in the next auction. So each one of those parcels has its own price, its own coordinate, and its own owner. And um, there's... Um, if you kind of look at, at what the most valuable parcels are, they tend to be right around the, the central, the spawn spot, the place where you're going to drop into Decentraland. People think that that may be like the Fifth Avenue, the Broadway of Decentraland. And so that, you know, is going to attract premium prices. And then next to roads, you know, those tend to be, you know, higher price parcels. Next to some of the bigger districts, those tend to be higher price parcels. And then the ones in the middle of nowhere are priced less. 
Right. Well, maybe someone will make a, a decentralized version of Marfa or something out there and it <laughs> become valuable. You recently launched a new investment trust in what was previously known as Zencash and has now changed its name to Horizon. This privacy coin was little known until it made headlines for becoming the victim of a 51% attack earlier this summer. And as of last night, it was ranked 79th on CoinMarketCap. So how did this crypto asset make the cut to become one of Grayscale's few investment trusts? So it started with, um, one, my belief that um, probably in 2019, I think a a big theme is going to be privacy coins, privacy-focused tokens. Um, And if you look at the list of what's out there, we were already very excited about Zcash. Um, you know, I think the team is fantastic. The vision is great. But I think if you look at the, the list of other privacy-focused tokens out there, many of them, uh, most of them, are really focused on primarily providing uh, private money as the only or the main utility. And so what was, was interesting to, uh, to us about Zencash or Horizon was the vision um, to utilize this network for not just private money, but um, private uh, interactions, things, whether it's messaging or file sharing or accessing the web. Uh, and so it's a, it's a bigger, broader vision um, than just private money. And so, so for me, it was, okay, privacy-focused you know, tokens are interesting, bigger vision. And then when you, when you meet the team, the people that are behind it, I think it's one of the highest quality groups of individuals, one of the most passionate communities out there. And then you kind of couple that with a market cap of, what is it? It's probably less than $100 million right now. It doesn't take a lot to go right for that project, for that token, to create meaningful value for people who, um, who are early supporters. So um, we got excited about it first you know, as an organization. And when we get excited about one of these things, um, we want to make sure it's accessible to as many investors as possible. So uh, Grayscale um, launched a, a trust modeled after the Bitcoin Investment Trust for it. And uh, just to draw out for listeners, what are the differences between Horizon and Zcash? So uh, Zcash is very much focused, at least today, on private money. Horizon has introduced the idea of a uh, of a staked node network um, that could be used to secure lots of different, again, kind of utility around private sharing of, again, messaging or file sharing or communication. So it's 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 actually it's a it's actually a fork of Zcash or. I think Zcash forked. Uh, I think it was maybe Z Classic, and then this forked off of it. So it's it, it's uh it's it's you know grandmother was Zcash, but it's taking a slightly different approach to creating um, a broader set of tools and utility for the network beyond just private money. And speaking of all your different investment trusts, what do you think will happen to the Bitcoin investment trust if an ETF is approved? A few things to highlight. Number one. Um, the Bitcoin Investment Trust was modeled after the Spider Gold ETF. Um, and so when we set that up in 2013, the expectation all along was at some point in time, the SEC would approve these ETFs. And at that point in time, uh, the Bitcoin Investment Trust um, would go through the process to get approved as an ETF. So um, we fully expect that the Bitcoin Investment Trust will be the first or one of the first ETFs to get approved when the SEC decides that they're ready to allow Bitcoin ETFs to exist on a national exchange. So basically at that point, then it wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't need to be an accredited investor to buy it. You wouldn't have that one year lockup period to trade it, stuff like that. Well, today it's traded on the OTCQX market under symbol GBTC. So our model is uh, one year after launching these funds, we um, look to get them traded on the OTCQX market. So the Ethereum Classic Investment Trust is now publicly traded as well under symbol ECCG. So the Bitcoin Investment Trust, if you wanted to buy shares in the public market, anybody who has a brokerage account you can go to that account and type on GBTC and, and buy it. Um, however, to buy shares directly from Grayscale at the NAV price, you have to be an accredited investor. At the point in time when um, Bitcoin Investment Trust becomes a uh, SEC reporting, SEC uh, registered product on a national exchange, then it won't look any different to what it looks today. Uh, it won't. It won't be any. 
you know, more accessible than it is today. The difference being is it'll likely trade more at the NAV price, whereas today it tends to trade at a, at a premium to the NAV price. Recently, you launched your digital large cap fund. And uh, as you mentioned, you also have the Ripple Investment Trust. I know some of your portfolio companies, particularly the top tier exchanges like Coinbase, Gemini and Circle, they're all declining to list Ripple because it seems like a security. So how did you choose Ripple and, and decide to also include it in your large cap fund? It's starts off with investor demand um, and as evidenced by the um, the activity and the trading of XRP and the market cap uh, there's clearly investor demand for it and so for us it was it was an easy decision to you know kind of just go through the list of, of tokens and you know do our own analysis um, around ones that um, you know kind of could be securities and you know the conclusion obviously before we did this was that XRP was not a security. And its inclusion in the large cap funds that's um that we don't have discretion that that fund is a um it's it's a market cap weighted uh formulaic um construct of a fund where um it it, it tries to essentially capture the top seventy percent market cap of the tokens, but there's exclusions around tokens that are not traded in U.S. dollar you know, markets. There's exclusions around um, cu- lack of custody solutions. There's exclusions around ones that may be deep securities. So um, XRP being included in that, in that large cap fund means that it's one of the largest, and we don't believe it's a security. You've invested in a lot of exchanges, but I also saw you invested in Radar Relay, which is Relay are on a decentralized exchange, Zero X. What are your thoughts around what the future of DEXs will be and how will they affect centralized exchanges? It's a fantastic question. I, I go back and forth on this. So one, Radar Relay, it's a fantastic team. Um, they are really, um, they've, they've accomplished a lot and they have great traction and, and you know, the volumes are, are certainly growing. I wonder if and when institutional investors um, will utilize um, decentralized exchanges. Um, you know, knowing just how hard it is to get trade approval you know, from a hedge fund or a bank or any institutional investor to even trade with our, you know, our, our you know, Genesis trading is a regulated, regulated by the SEC, regulated by FINRA, has a bit license. You know, it's a process to get approved. So what I wonder is when or if the institutional flows um, will find their way onto decentralized exchanges. And until that happens, I think from a liquidity perspective, it'll be hard for those types of exchanges to compete. But I do see the value, um, obviously, in the in the concept of a decentralized exchange. And you know, if, if any if any model you know could be disintermediated um, through the use of you know smart contract technology and tokenization of assets, um, you know, it's an exchange. It's an exchange business. Um, so I, I would say um, cautious, optimistic. But um, you know, as you point out, um, of the many many decentralized exchanges out there, um, I believe that's the only one that we've invested in. You just mentioned Wall Street, and I know that in previous remarks, you've said that what Wall Street says publicly about crypto is differently from what they say in private. What are those differences? Well, look, I think the, the, you know, the Jamie Dimon quotes have been fantastic. Um, and there's you know plenty of anecdotes um, of you know people you know <laughs> being in the JP Morgan building, uh, meeting people about X Y Z you know digital currency related when Jamie makes these comments. What we're seeing right now is um, you know despite the um, the drop in prices, the, despite the drop in volumes this year, uh, the level of engagement um, and the and the level of seriousness that we see coming out of the Wall Street institutions and banks um, is at an all-time high. It's not, um, you know, there, there's you know, plenty of commentators that, that, you know, say that, you know, Bitcoin's dead. There's plenty of commentators that say that, you know, the bubble's burst and it's over. Behind the scenes, it's kind of full steam ahead right now. And, you know, what, what, what's pretty clear is nobody wants to be first, but everybody wants to be a really fast follower, Certainly, no one wants to be last. So I, I do think whether it's um, you know what what Goldman has announced they're doing or what ICE is doing, I think one of one something is gonna is gonna I think kind of you know break open that dam, 
and it's going to be very, very popular and very socially acceptable um, for a bank to be offering to their clients and customers access to this asset class pretty quickly when that happens. When it happens, I don't know. But when it does happen, it's going to happen very fast. And what impact do you think it will have on the on the crypto markets? Because everybody made all this, you know, hubbub over how the the futures were going to like bring all this money into Bitcoin and everything. And obviously now we've just seen this massive downturn. And then now everyone's saying like, oh, backed is going to be huge. But like, what do you think is is really going to be the effect of all these things? I would guess, I will predict um, that by the end of 2019, the conversation, the commentary on, let's call, you know, CNBC is not going to be whether this asset class is a tulip bubble or Ponzi scheme. It's not going to be about, um, you know, blockchainifying this and that. It's going to be um, this asset class is here to stay. What is the proper allocation, and how do you allocate that money? I think we're I think we're twelve eighteen months away from that, and so all of you know again whether it's Goldman or backed or futures are all, these are all just um, contributing towards the normalization, contributing towards the infrastructure that's required for that to be possible, and we're. You know, I gotta say, we're the the pipes they're they're being laid right now, and the decision makers are all coming to terms with one the idea this is not going away, but two is this is going to create significant opportunity and in some cases significant risk, and they're not going to want to be left out. But it's gonna it's it's gonna take some time. You obviously, I'm sure recall that about a year and a half ago, the Bitcoin community was an impasse. Actually, that lasted for three years Hmm. over how to scale the network. What is it? Everything's great now? Yeah. Well, (laughs) you you tell me. Um, So at that time, a year and a half ago, you brokered what became known as the New York Agreement. This is the sort of compromise that said, okay, some people want one megabyte block. Some people want uh, SegWit to, to scale the network. Why don't we do both? And a lot of people came to decry this, what they called a backroom deal, and ultimately it fell apart. So what's your take on what happened and the role that you played? (laughs) So I swore that I would never speak about this time period again once we got it behind us. And what, what, what I'll say is I think my role, my involvement at the beginning was trying to take advantage of the relationships that I had built over five years in the space, trusted relationships that I had built, and convene. And you know, when a meeting was proposed on a very well-known um, uh, Silicon Valley Google group, I put my hand up and said, look, I- I'm happy to try to get people together. And I knew it was important to invite the participation of the key stakeholders, the developers, the miners, the businesses. And much to my surprise, um, as I started chatting with folks, everybody was, everybody was just so mentally drained at that point from the, the fighting and the negativity that people were willing to, to kind of, to have a conversation. And, um, to me, look, it was it was clear to me early on that this really was not a technology debate. It was really more of a, just a lack of communication or misunderstanding. And my goal at the time was to try to get SegWit activated. And how how that happened, I didn't really care, but I knew I could convene. And I convened, and two of the three stakeholder groups showed up, meaning the miners and the companies, the developers, either you know given the decentralized nature or you know lack of you know leader for you know bitcoin development didn't show up though invited the companies and the miners came to agreement pretty quickly and that's what became the new york agreement and ultimately uh the first piece of it got done Sega was activated the second piece didn't and people moved on with their lives well do you feel like you learned any particular lessons from that or i um i love 
the honey badger description of Bitcoin. I'm sure you know that. Um, right. And anybody who doesn't know what I'm talking about, just Google, you know, honey badger video. And um, it, it, it just, it was further confirmation about, to me, about just how resilient Bitcoin is. And again, I didn't care at all what the resolution was to that, you know, that whole conversation, whether it was SegWit or SegWit plus larger block size or nothing. And the fact that Bitcoin didn't die after the either the half success or half failure of SegWit2x just, I think, kind of further reiterated or, or reconfirmed in my mind that you just can't kill Bitcoin. All right. Well, that's a great note to end on. Thanks. Um, well, actually, before we go, where can people learn more about you and DCG? Uh, our website is dcg.co. If you um, have a great idea and you're looking for a uh, supportive investor, reach out to our team. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Barry and DCG, check out the show notes inside your podcast episode. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylene Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.